Uh, we'll start with Ayal, and then we'll again we'll move down uh, down the the horn or around the horn. Just a quick intro of yourself and and your fund, and sort of you know what what your strategy is for investing. Sure, um, uh, Ayal Bino, co-founder of Iconic Labs, um, born and raised in Israel. Uh, Twenty years ago, which seems like a lifetime ago, I moved to New York to go to school, and and here I am, twenty years later. Um, uh, I co-founded Iconic in 2015 with the idea to help uh, Israeli startups to uh, expand to New York uh, into the US market in day one, um, provide them with a small check. But really the idea behind Iconic is to become that partner who's really aligned with the founders from day one and help them get to market, uh, provide access to the VC community, to um, first customers, talent, um, branding and really help uh, and advise the company as they grow. Uh, so we start with a four to six month months acceleration program, and then we kind of continue supporting the companies as, as we go. So far, we invested in um, about 50 companies that uh, raised about 250, almost 300 in, in follow-on funding. Um, uh, you know, we have some really interesting announcements coming up in the next couple of weeks. And, uh, and that's it. Uh, excited to be in this panel. Thanks, Leah. Go ahead, Leah. Okay. Hey, everyone. I'm Leah Cromwell. Um, I'm the principal at UpWest. We're a cross-border VC with offices in Tel Aviv and Palo Alto. Um, I'm originally from New York. I joined UpWest about almost four years ago when I moved out here to Tel Aviv um, to open our Israel operations. We're focused on a mix of pre-seed and seed stage investments. I have a feeling we'll unpack that a little bit on the panel. Uh, specifically, we invest in Israeli-founded companies who are targeting the U.S. market. We've been around since 2012. Since then, we've invested in over 80, com 80 Israeli-founded companies uh, that have gone on to raise over $1.5 in follow-on funding. Uh, we have the largest portfolio of Israeli startups that are headquartered in the U.S. Thank you, Leah. David Stark, I'm one of the co-founders of Ground Up Ventures. We invest in pre-seed and seed stage companies in the U.S. and in Israel, so I think we're the only, uh, I'm the only one on the panel who will invest in companies that have no connection whatsoever to Israel. Um, but it's, you know, the portfolio is about a 50-50 mix. We've got 29 companies in the portfolio today. Um, and as I mentioned, so we lead, we're a leader of pre-seed rounds and uh, we typically follow and seed um, and excited to be here and to talk to you all about pre-seed. Awesome. So uh, thanks everyone for the introductions. Um, the first, you know, real question I have is around the definition of pre-seed. Um, you know, how would you define pre-seed in today's market and how did COVID and the whole 2020 uh, impact this stage? I put stage in quotations. Anyone can jump right in. So this is uh, no longer ordered. So I'll, I'll, I'll jump in on at least part of the question in terms of the definition of pre-seed. I think that uh, the lines have been blurred for defining kind of any stage today. Um, and for me, I think about it more in terms of round size than anything else, because uh, there are a lot of founders, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, uh, who at this point are just skipping straight to seed. And uh, so it's not a function and, and they'll be at the exact same stage, right? It can be that they just have an idea in a PowerPoint and they'll raise a $6 million round. Like, I don't think anyone would call that a pre-seed. So if it's not defined by stage of company, then what can it be defined by? Uh, I think it's just, you know, by round size. And where I would draw that line today is anything that's 2 million or smaller. Um, I think, uh, you know, I would call a pre-seed, but I'm really curious to hear what Leah and I all have to say about that. Yeah, I would also for sure say that as of late, the bar, the cutoff line is somewhere around 2 million. Um, another easy way to think about it, if we're looking at those kinds of metrics, and it sounds silly, but often founders come to us and tell us they're raising something using a safe versus looking at a priced round. The mentality is pretty different around there. Usually safes, first of all, I've seen safes above 2 million, but I would say the vast majority of safes go up to two or maybe 2.5 um, with a cap somewhere around maybe five. Um, something like that tends to be considered more of a pre-seed round. Internally, we look at it pretty fluidly. Uh, so we write checks between about $100,000 up to 2 million. Uh, and it's, it's definitely less a question of, do we want to put this in the pre-seed versus seed bucket? Because sometimes the difference between a company, just like David said, that's raising maybe 750K versus, you know, 5 million is not that different. 
Um, so it's more a question of assessing the needs of the founders and how they're going to use the capital and how it can push them towards the next round. Yeah, no, I think I think that's all pretty interesting, and I think that's all pretty aligned, in, you know, with my thinking. I'd say in New York, um, the typical pre-seed round is about a million dollars for a pre-product uh, company. They don't really have any really kind of traction that is meaningful, so there there is not a product market fit, um, and it's done usually on a safe or a note. <clears throat> and then if there is some validation and some early proof points. Um, then typically it goes to like about three to $4 million seed round. So I think in New York, 2 million is probably on the higher end because uh, if, a, if a seed fund uh, in New York wants to do like a $3 million fund, you know, round and they put it in half, the typical pre-money will be anywhere between, let's say seven to 10 or 12. Like they wanna have at least five to 10% of the company, right? Um, I also want to uh, kind of distinguish between first-time founders and, and repeat founders, right? Like you see repeat founders raising $10 million pre-seed round, right? Like they, it's just easier for them versus uh, first-time founders where it's just so much harder for them, especially during COVID, where their network is different. They don't really have uh, the track record. Um, it's really a lot about the team at that early stage, right? So. Uh, I think there's a little bit, especially I think in Israel, there's a little bit of a difference between how do you define pre-seed, especially with the kind of larger larger funds investing in uh, repeat founders and, and putting some meaning, you know, meaningful capital into, into their companies. I used to think that it had to do with repeat founders versus not. At this stage of the market, I think it's as long as you have any operating experience, like whatsoever, uh, in terms of kind of pedigree and, and having been in a relevant role, then you get thrown into that repeat founder bucket, even though you didn't actually ever start a company before. Right, right. Well, that's an interesting uh, segue into the next question, right, which is about adverse selection. So if you don't need to be a repeat founder to skip the pre-seed stage, what is exciting at the pre-seed stage. How do you think about the the current environment and, and how it relates to to not uh, you know kind of getting the the founders who are just not able to raise a seed? Sure. Um, maybe I'll I'll tackle that first. We don't believe that there's an adverse selection problem. Um, I'm sure that founders who are unable to raise seed go out to market and try to raise pre-seed. Um, I wouldn't assume, though, that all of those founders are succeeding in raising pre-seed rounds. Uh, we're extremely selective. We have the same level of conviction writing a pre-seed check as writing you know, a larger check. Um, obviously, the types of data points that we can analyze are different, maybe a pre-seed, sometimes in seed. But we never say, you know what, this team is whatever, so we'll just give them a pre-seed round. We love our pre-seed founders just as much. And so what that translates to then is not adverse selection, but definitely you'll see a different type of company often that comes to raise a pre-seed round. We like to refer to our portfolio construction as being a healthy mix between sort of a traditional Israeli industries. So think cybersecurity, fintech, enterprise SaaS, um, and more kind of unconventional emerging sectors where the markets are more nascent, um, there's less proof, um, often also the investment market in terms of trends in Israel, I might get in trouble for saying this, but often the market falls a year or two behind the States. Um, so for us, especially since half our team sits in California, it's easy to keep, you know, a finger on the pulse of what's getting pre-seed and seed funding in the States and make sure that we're on top of those opportunities in Israel, likely before other local funds here are fully aware. So that will also push really, you know, emerging compelling founders to do seed, uh, pre-seed, excuse me, instead of seed, um, irrespective of the amount of experience that they have, irrespective of their ability to, you know, sell a product. Sometimes it's just what it is that they're building. Mm -hmm. David. Yeah. I mean, just to echo what Leah said, I think that you'll see still today um, great founders raise pre-seed who know that there's a hypothesis that needs to be tested, right? It's not like they say, hey, like, this is a problem. I have the answer. Now it's just a function of resources and engineering hours and I can build it. But I've got a hunch, right, that there's a market need for this. Let me go answer a couple of questions. And once I can answer those questions, the market in terms of investors will have much greater conviction, but even I as an, as an entrepreneur will have greater conviction, right? I don't want to go raise a bunch of money and commit myself to X number of years before I actually go ahead and can answer some of these questions. Um, 
And so we, we think that that's kind of a really interesting opportunity within pre-seed. And that's like a type of risk that we feel comfortable taking, which is actually an important point because I actually think that we've seen a lot of the larger multi-stage funds kind of moving down market into seed, but their DNA is still not to take some of that kind of hypothesis testing risk. It's more of like, okay, we can just throw capital at the problem and, and kind of brute force our way to a solution. So we think that that's still um, a you know key edge as a differentiator in terms of pre-seed opportunities. And the other one I would just say is that despite some of these seed rounds being really large, they actually tend to be pretty dilutive, um, even despite kind of valuations, you know, going up. So I actually think that for some founders, if they realize that there's actually a near term kind of value inflection point and actually doesn't, it doesn't require that much capital um, to be able to get to a point where they could go raise that much larger round at a significantly higher price. I actually think that the founder will be way better off in the long run and they don't have to worry about kind of creating valuation overhang and kind of really raising the bar as far as expectations between kind of their first round and their next round. So I think that some founders and in particular, actually, some repeat founders are pretty thoughtful about kind of how they want to approach staging their fundraises as opposed to just kind of taking on too much too quickly. It's a great yeah. point. I think also, jump. sorry to, to jump back in, when we were talking before about first time versus repeat founders, sometimes, you know, pre-seed may be more appealing to a repeat founder for the simple reason that it allows for much greater capital efficiency. Um, raising too much too fast, Max, I know you've written about this in the past. Uh, but raising too much too fast can also be detrimental to a company. Before you've really figured out what it is that you're doing and you're just building the funnel around it, it's really easy to just you know throw money out the door because you're trying to validate and maybe you could do it in a more you know clever, efficient way. But if someone writes you a large check to figure something out, you'll probably use that whole check figuring something out. Yeah, I, I'm just going to add one thing, which is about leverage, right? Like I think founders when they want to go and raise 3 million pre-product when they don't have a lot of validation, they don't really have a lot of leverage when it comes to valuation, when it comes to choosing their partners, right? Um, it kind of contradicts what they actually want to do, which is to, you know, grow a big company and actually keep at least some equity that is meaningful at the end, right? So if you actually um, raise less, validate the product in the market, and then you know, you have the leverage when you go and raise the next round, right? So I think that's what I've been preaching to my founders because a lot of them, you know, they want to get the 3 million or the 5 million or the 10 million, you know, to kind of get going and it's not really a fit for them. And the other thing is you raise less, it keeps you scrappy, it keeps you hungry and it keeps you motivated because, you know, you, you have so much runway, right? Like you have to prove it before you go to the next thing, right? So I think that that, that is something that I'm trying to kind of keep uh, kind of ingrained in, in the founders that, uh, you know, we work with at Iconic. So, but just to, just to be realistic and kind of to make the panel interesting. Um, I, because so I, far I, it wasn't? No, no what I'm saying is <laughs> more what I would say, what I would say, and I'd love to hear your guys' perspective on this. I think it's a hard pitch, right? When I'm sitting with a founder who is capable of going and raising five and trying to convince them, no, 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 you shouldn't, right? You should raise a million. Um, Despite everything we just said, it's not easy. So I'd love to, I mean, I'm sorry to take over your job as moderator, but I'm, I'm very curious to hear, you know, how, how you're all dealing with that and, and kind of what you're seeing. It's hard. And, and, and I'm sorry, Leah, I'm just going to say one thing. And I think there's also a thing about a bunch of funds in New York are doing incubation, right? Like they'll, they'll bring an EAR, right? Like an entrepreneur in residence and they'll help him and they just bring him in and, and see if he comes up with an idea and then they help them get going. So there's a lot of ways to do this. And I think founders just have a lot more options today versus five or 10 years ago. And I think that makes it in a way more, you know, competitive, but also more interesting. Um, listen, I think at the end of the day, what I've learned over the last couple of years is that capital is commodity, right? Like I think a lot of it is about value. It is about helping the founders kind of figure it out at the very early stage. And if you bring that value of like, hey, we'll be there with you. We are all aligned from the very first moment and we have the network to help you get going, which I think Opus has done very well and you're doing very well, David. I think it helps you build the credibility over time and, and, and kind of build expertise that this is exactly what I'm doing. And if you want to do this, I can get you there, right? And I think that's what, uh, you know, a lot of funds are doing pretty well, you know, obviously you guys and, and some others. It's definitely a tricky pitch. Um, first of all, I would never tell a founder to turn down money, of course. Um, and often, you know, it, especially in the founder's shoes, it makes sense to take the larger check for sure, especially assuming the terms aren't anything ridiculous. 
Um, I would say that the people who ultimately, you know, choose to, to raise from us do it for similar reasons to why they raise from you, David, or where they go to an accelerator like Iconic. Um, when you're at that pre-seed stage, you need people who are hands-on who are really going to fight for you. Uh, and especially coming from Israel, simply because the U.S. is a foreign market. Uh, having other people who are on your side and who already have those local networks that they can introduce you to makes a huge difference. Um, we have, you know, done pre-seed rounds before in companies where our, you know, pre-seed safe was up against a proper priced, uh, priced seed round. And they chose to turn that down and take our money instead because they saw value, you know, beyond the few hundred thousand dollars we were giving at pre-seed, they saw value in having that market access. Uh, David, you have anything else to ask? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, feel free. No, anyone can feel free to, to take the mic and ask a question. It's an open, uh, it's an open conversation. Um, you know, maybe let's talk about pre-seed versus seed because, I mean, I think for sure, Lee and, and David, you guys are, um, you know, willing to, to follow and Ayal, you can, you can uh, share what your philosophy is here. But, you know, what are you, what are you looking for uh, if you're going to come in at the seed versus going to come in at the pre-seed? So, excuse me, uh, preferably definitely more validation um, and some level of early traction. We lead seed rounds also. Uh, so it depends of course on the size of the round, but we're comfortable leading. And when we're coming in to consider leading around, I would say one of the biggest differences between that and pre-seed is a market that either it's one that we know already, a sector we know already. Um, so it's naturally easier for us to diligence and therefore perhaps we'd be more comfortable investing when the team has a little less. At, at seed, um, you know, team dynamics and what you evaluate there is frankly the same at pre-seed and seed. But there's, I can't give you like a definite answer as to what the precise point is, the inflection point between pre-seed and seed, but it ultimately does come down to validation from customers. Um, we still understand that companies that we're investing in at seed have a lot of growing they're doing. And I think that the definition of a series A has also kind of shifted accordingly with seed over the past few years, maybe less so, but to an extent. Um, it's hard for us to do seed if we can't get on the phone with people and really validate what you're doing. At pre-seed, we're willing to do that if you can give us reasons why it is that this market opportunity you're looking at is going to explode. Um, but while we're comfortable looking at early stage where maybe there isn't a product developed yet, there at least then has to be some validation from early customers. So people even who are pilot customers who are design partners, we understand if they're not using a full-fledged product. But the key thing there is just there has to be some external validation that you can provide for us, I would say. Um, within specific verticals, it's much more nuanced. Um, it's pretty common in today's market for cybersecurity companies, for example, to raise seed before, before they've developed anything. It's just a more challenging space. But they're also a great example of why it's an easy sector to do seed deals in because it's very easy to get on the, on the phone with a CISO um, and validate that the problem that a particular startup is tackling is real. Apple. Um, yeah, that's, we think about things very similarly in terms of you know, the difference between pre-seed and seed. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that validation is key, right? And that, that's for me the biggest difference between pre-seed and seed. Um, we do invest in, in companies that raise about one to two million and, and you know, our check is, is, is not so big um, because I think many companies in Israel raise and they go to the garage and it takes them a long time to get to the market. And sometimes the product you know, is really exciting. It just takes them longer than, than usual to get to the market. And we kind of try to speed things up. Um, but that's a, a, a little bit of a tougher pitch because a lot of investors are saying, hey, you've been around for three, four years, you raised like two or three million, you know, you don't have enough traction, right? And, and I think that's a little bit of a, of a challenge for Israeli companies who are not in the market yet. So um, yeah, I think that uh, it brings us back to like, you know, being able to, uh, to do pre-seed, you know, pretty well and, and, and start off uh, building the company in the US, um, you know, I think from day one, because that's, I think what's going to make a difference if you want to, raise capital from U.S. investors, get U.S. customers, et cetera. Absolutely. Cool. So, you know, one, yeah, one thing that I'm seeing in the market, which I think is like the biggest mm -hmm. investor trap, are, are pre-seed round sizes at seed prices, which happens all the time. And uh, that's just like the one thing we don't want to be doing. Um, so I think uh, 
I think because the bar has been raised kind of because round sizes have gone up, the bar has been raised at each subsequent round that you have to be really sensitive to kind of what your starting point is. So if you're not raising enough in your pre-seed and you're already kind of starting at, you know, something close to where your seed would price. Like, I just think that you're really setting yourself and, and, and the investors up for trouble. Um, whereas I'd rather actually pay up, you know, a little bit as part of a much larger seed round where that company has the firepower uh, to be able to just attract more and more firepower. And it creates kind of this progressive reaction where, you know, the companies that are, are growing quickly and attracting capital that it compounds and just kind of accelerates. Which is, by the way, another reason why I think pre-seed makes so much sense for a bunch of companies today. Um, first of all, on average, you do have to prove more. The number of seed rounds, both in the US and in Israel, has declined. Um, I know that you opened TechCrunch or SeedTech, The Marker, any of those publications, and it really sounds like everybody and their, you know, everybody and their mother has raised money for a startup, but that's not actually the case. The graveyard of, of you know, startups who failed to get off the ground is only growing by the day. Um, and pre-seed can really help you then when you, especially if you want to hit that point at your seed round where you're able to just really show that sharp trajectory upward. If you then have the support of a pre-seed round behind you, it often makes it easier. And that's a big, that's a big role that we play with our companies because you get early validation um, for, I mean, I can speak on behalf of, I guess, all three of us pre-seed investors on the call that, that since we all have a US connection, being able to make sure we bring our companies to the U.S. market at the pre-seed also make sure they're building the correct product for the correct, you know, stakeholder within their target organization by the time they get to seed, and it helps them break through the noise. Let me ask you, David, because you you know you're like a, a true Israeli fund. Um, uh, is there because in in New York pre-seed, let's say up to a million, million and a half, then you go and you'll raise seed, right? And that's typically the case. Um, in Israel, is there a difference between pre-seed and seed from a product and traction perspective? Because I, I, I personally don't feel like there is. Right. Um, not necessarily. I think that's what we were saying before. It's that, um, but, but also, yes, like I actually think that you'd be shocked that seed rounds with traction are priced at maybe a slight premium to a lot of pre-seed rounds that have nothing, right? So right. Um, I know funds that used to do pre-seed and now they're saying it just doesn't make sense kind of given where we're at. We'd rather be waiting a little bit longer and then leaning in on the seed in particular because the, you know, if you go to a company that just raised a pre-seed and you come to them three months later, but where they've already kind of proven a few things, they're not going to turn down the money or the conversation, right? So you don't have to wait, you know, 12, 18 months kind of between pre-seed and seed. So I think for a lot of people, they realize that, you know, by staying close to it, they can kind of then maybe preempt the seed and, and maybe pay up mm -hmm. slight, a slightly higher price, but where they feel much better in terms of kind of the risk reward. Yeah. But I think also the intention of a pre-seed round usually isn't to last you 12 Right. Up to 18 months. Um, yeah. That's never been our intention. Like over 90% of our portfolio company raises, mm -hmm. they go from their pre-seed to the seed round in about like four to five months, the next round's raised. But how large are those pre-seeds typically? So, I mean, we, we've invested across a few funds and the round sizes have absolutely gone up according to the market. When Upwest started in 2012, the round sizes were well below $100,000. Now today when we're doing... A pre-seed check, I would say we would go up to about $750,000 with also the assumption that even if we're putting in, of course, 750K, we're not necessarily the full round. Um, we're often investing alongside other micro funds or um, angels at the pre-seed. Let me just jump in uh, to ask a specific question about you know how much capital is being invested at pre-seed. So when you guys are doing diligence on like the ask and the budget, I mean, what is sort of the, you know, the target when, when you look at each specific company? Are, are you underwriting to a specific achievement that they're going to, you know, get to with the 500, with the 750K? And what do you think is kind of the smallest amount of capital, um, you know, that, that's required in today's market to actually prove something that would allow them to then go out and raise the seed? It's so subjective based on what you need to, to prove to get to the seed. Like for some companies, they could, you know, bootstrap along until they raise the seed, but they've just decided that they'd like to have, you know, us come in for the hands-on support. Um, they could be a team who for personal financial issues, isn't sure that they necessarily would be able to bootstrap long enough to get to a seed. So raising a pre-seed gives 
the founders that, that breath. Um, sometimes they need the money specifically to hire like one developer to help them. No one raises pre-seed with the expectation that they're going to be able to hire like a proper team under them. Um, but the smallest amount that you need per person definitely depends on what the what the individual milestones are to get to seed. I wouldn't treat your pre-seed round though ever as something that you're budgeting with the expectation that it should last you a year to 18 months. You should be aiming to kind of close the gap and hit some like key milestones pretty quickly with that money to get to seed. Yeah, I, I think it really depends on the space, right? I mean, in health, things just take longer, right? So, um, um, you know, you might need a little bit more capital, maybe a million, right? In, if you're like a, a sales company doing, you know, uh, sales tools, you might just need like five customers who really love your product, pay for it and brings you the validation. And maybe that's, that takes like three to six months, right? So I think it's, uh, I think it's a little bit sub subjective, like Leah said. Um, I think a lot of it is just about creating momentum, like creating that momentum that gives you firepower to bring in uh, the, the, you know, the next VP sales or the CRO or the next customer and showing that communication to investors and to the market, I think by itself gives you that, you know, momentum that you need in order to raise the next round. So it's a little bit different, I think, for every company. I think by and large, anywhere between 750 to a million should get you to some proof point, even if it's pretty minimal. Um, it's gone up, obviously, because, you know, salaries have gone up and everything is a little bit more expensive. Um, but I think in general, anything that can bring you to some sort of validation, uh, that's what you should uh, plan for when you, when you budget. You know, just to take a, a slightly different view um, for the founders who are listening in, I think up west, or you know, you might be a little bit more aggressive in terms of thinking about the time frame of the flip from pre-seed to seed. I, I think that founders should not be surprised when they pitch certain pre-seed investors that they'd like to see that they have at least a year of runway from the pre-seed round, um, and that's because things don't always go right and things take longer and cost more than kind of expected. So it gives a little bit of buffer time to you know, potentially pivot and or to run maybe a fundraise that isn't the type of kind of hot fundraise that gets done in two weeks, right? And um, so I do think that uh, often that is feedback that, that you will hear from some pre-seed investors. Cool. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of speed of decision-making, I feel like if you're seeing a pre-seed round and it's a good team, um, you know, you, you want to be able to, to close the deal, you know, in the first meeting at this, you know, this point in today's market. So how do you uh, tr triage, I guess, sort of the, the competitive, you know, market we're in with being able to get enough comfort in, in terms of the, the risk to, to take that bet? So I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, when you're when you're doing pre-seed, there's often not that much, right, to be like digging into in terms of what you're what you know what you're diligencing. Uh, but the most important part is the team, and that's the part that's the hardest to actually get a feel for in such a condensed period of time, right? All the rest of it, you could say, I'm going to stay up all night, I'm going to pour over their their numbers and the market size and all of that. But team is just you know the more time you spend with them, the more you'll get a good read on on their abilities. Um, so for that, and it actually relates to something Ayal said earlier and, and in general relates to the broader pre-seed versus seed opportunity and how you can get great founders is I think we all need to just be going even earlier in our relationship building, right? So one of the things that like we're doing now is we're trying to brand ourselves as we want to be your like ideation partners as you're thinking about going to do something next, right? Like you just, you want to go explore an idea, let us explore with you. And then when that person's ready to make, you know, to they've kind of built their conviction on this is the idea they want to jump into. We've already kind of de-risked it significantly in terms of having a great read on the team. And then we can make a really fast decision. So that's how we've been able to kind of um, accelerate our decision-making as much as possible. And otherwise, um, you know, we, we just try to do everything that we would have done, um, but much faster. So even if it means a couple of reference calls or kind of speaking to people who know them, we're just trying to literally do that stuff, you know, within 24 to 48 hours of, of kind of first meeting the company. During the first meeting, you're WhatsApping their former yeah, exactly. employer. Hey, do you know this guy? Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't agree more with, with uh, David on the uh, relationship. I mean, I think a lot of it is, Listen, Israelis, have, I don't want to say they're very transactional, but there is something about Israelis where they don't get a check, they just move on to the next guy, right? So that's something that 
ingrained in us. I think that's part of our DNA. Um, and I think a lot of it is about, hey, let's get to know each other uh, first before we kind of, you know, go, go and, and get married. Um, you know, us as, as iconic, we move pretty fast because we, you know, the value we bring is, is really mostly on, on the value add and, and the customers and the, and, and the funding and, and less on, on the check side that we initially put in. Um, a lot of our diligence is talking to other VCs from the market who have done a lot of investments in, in that particular field and to get kind of their take on it. Um, and that really gives us kind of a, a validation uh, if this is right, because they can't really validate the team. This is our job, but they can really validate hey, if these guys um, can get to that specific API, we'll invest, right? Like that, we at least look at it, right? Um, and I think that's a, a big one for us. A lot of it goes into, hey, who do you know that knows this guy or that guy? And in Israel, that's, I think that's, uh, that's pretty easy to do because we're such a, a collaborative and a small community. We also really rely on our founders in the diligence process. Um, We've invested over the years in over 80 companies. We have over 200 founders uh, whom we've invested in over the past decade or so. So that's also very helpful, especially when you need to run an expedited process. Honestly, I think that in short, to summarize what we've all kind of said here, you know, when it has to be a short process, it has to be a short process and you just find a way to, to get everything done in time. Cool. Yeah, that, uh, that definitely makes sense. So let, let's talk about post-investment. So how involved are you guys you know, once you make the investment, how hands-on, what does hands-on mean? Uh, do you, you know, help companies make strategic decisions from day one? Uh, and in which ways are you, you really trying to create value for founders? So we have a pretty robust operation around that. Uh, we have a head of platform who's based out in San Francisco, who helps organize a lot of this stuff for the portfolio. But a lot of the day-to-day hands-on work, um, we, the investment team, take on ourselves. Uh, obviously, there's kind of more formal stuff like board seats and that type of thing, but it's such a tiny piece. The real work is rolling up your sleeves and helping people, especially at pre-seed. It's everything from validating the problem that they think they want to solve through connecting them to customers. Hiring is a really big thing, especially in the U.S. Um, we have a stronger network to help them, for example, find their first like head of sales in the States. And I think that's usually the hardest hire for early stage companies, specifically, specifically Israeli stage companies, Israeli early stage companies coming to the US. It's often the head of sales. Um, we're very hands-on with the fundraising for future rounds too, from the strategic standpoint, plus intros. About a bit over 90% of the seed and series A money our portfolio has raised over the years has come from direct intros we've made. Looking at series B through later rounds, um, the number is roughly 60 to 65 percent. I have to double check the numbers because we've had some new rounds come in, but somewhere close to two thirds. So fundraising, we're always hands on. I would say we're the most hands on with company operations staff through the Series A. After the A, happy to be very active, very engaged. Um, but, you know, you have a larger investor who came in at the A, who wrote a larger check. So often at that point, then we'll take a little bit more of a, a step back. But we're engaged with our founders through the long run. David, you want to jump in because you were apple to apple? Sure. Um, our, our mantra is that we want our portfolio companies to think of us as an extension of their headcount. So um, we really like to be like utility players. We also have a head of platform who sits in New York and we kind of think about our value add in two ways. So we have kind of the value add programs that we've productized, which kind of scale as the portfolio grows. Um, and then we have kind of the bespoke, you know, one-to-one -one help that we're providing our companies. Um, we actually send out an email every week on Monday to all of our portfolio companies and say, like, what can we take off your plate this week? And it's amazing. So like they will respond with, hey, you know, we're trying to recruit for this position or we need intros or whatever it is. Um, and then we can work in like weekly sprints and we monitor all of our KPIs. Like we track every intro that we make and, um, and then we also obviously have some projects which are kind of much longer evergreen kind of things that we're doing. But yeah, it really ranges across the board. But most importantly, they know that we're always available. Like we like to be, you know, the first person that they call, the fastest to respond. Um, and, and it's really, you know, across the board. Yeah, I'm just going to add to all that, that. I think a lot of our work, especially in the beginning, is around uh, the story, the pitch, um, 
the culture, right? I think a lot, a lot of it is about um, making sure that Israelis and Americans speak the same language. And I think that's pretty hard for Israelis in the beginning when they come to the market. Uh, just like it's probably hard for Max when he comes to Israel after a vacation in Philly and he gets back to all the, all the Israeliness, right? So um, I, I for think- For a day or two. <laughs> um, but I think it's really big for Israelis to try to kind of almost like transform themselves a little bit like keep their identity and their uniqueness and, and being original. Uh, but at the same time, try to like uh, speak the same language as, as VCs in, in New York are, are speaking. And, and I think that's, that's hard. I think that's hard. And, and I think that the, the best entrepreneurs know how to, how to juggle between those two worlds. And I think that's, uh, that's pretty special. Cool. Um, have, have you guys actually seen any pre-seed companies you've invested in skip the seed round or have they all had to go to the seed to get to the, to get to the A? We sort of like, it becomes a complicated question to answer just because like you could do the, the sort of traditional path, which is you raise your pre-seed round, then you raise a normal seed round, then maybe there's going to be some sort of, you know, um, round extension before you get to the A. Some companies um, find themselves raising sort of more from strategics along the way. And then it kind of adds up to a point where I don't know if you call it a seed round because it was spread over time before they get to the A. So I think the closest we've had in terms of companies, you know, skipping seed, We've had a couple where they're working in specific industries where having, you know, key names involved matters much more than having a VC writing the check. So it made more sense for them to take like a few smaller checks from a few very um, important strategics to get them to the A. Mm -hmm. I'd also say that unless your A is massive, I would still opt to call it a seed, right? I mean, if I had raised pre-seed and then I go and raise around, um, I'm gonna call that my seed because again, I'm like then always staying ahead of the curve in terms of expectations as opposed to kind of right. around. Yeah, I'd say it's pretty rare, but it does happen. We have a company now, uh, it hasn't been announced that they raised about 2 million on like a bunch of notes and safes. And then they finally got to like validation. Uh, and then they raised $7 million A round. They kind of skipped the seed, which for me was seed, but then it was really A in the documents. And uh, a year later, they, they just uh, closed another $30 million B round, right? So it's kind of a mishmash of, of things, but uh, you, you know what? Uh, who, who knows what's A, B, or, or pre-seed now? I mean, everything is just so blurry. Right, Honestly, right. I think the most important thing, regardless of what label you're putting on it, just make sure that you're aligned with the investors you're speaking to about what stage in the company's life cycle they invest in. Are they open to investing in pre-revenue companies? If you have to be post-revenue, um, what is, or post-revenue, if, if you must be a revenue generating company, you know, what is the threshold that they need to see? I would just think about everything more through that lens rather than you know, which letter of the alphabet you're opting for. How much dilution do you guys usually, or how much ownership do you guys usually target at the pre-seed? David is super aggressive, right? Me? <laughs> Definitely not. Because um, we invest in the U.S. also, so we can, uh, the U.S. is less, less expensive. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's about we personally, in terms of where we're investing in our check sizes, we end up at between five and ten percent, but that doesn't necessarily represent the full round size. But that's what we're yeah. doing for our check. Our, I mean, look, our typical checks range from roughly 200,000 up to 2 million. So there's definitely variety in there. Um, we range from close to like just below 10% to around 15-ish. If we're leading a seed round, it depends on the dynamics of, of the particular round. Mm -hmm. yeah. we're, we're a small investor. We typically end up at like three to 5%. Um, and uh, I think for us, it's really about trying to get into companies that can really grow, um, you know, over time. It doesn't have to be fast. They don't have to be a billion dollar company, but they really need to be meaningful uh, and impactful. Right. So, you know, in terms of not needing to be a million dollar company, one thing that I at least see at Lul is that a lot of times we pass on a company because it doesn't have that billion dollar uh, uh, DNA or it doesn't have the aspiration or the market's just not 
quite there and the founders are completely honest about it and transparent. Um, and so, you know, if, if I were, you know, investing through a smaller vehicle that didn't need to necessarily return, you know, 150, $300 million, I would think it might, you know, be interesting to actually back these types of companies that maybe they can break even with a million dollars, or maybe they've bootstrapped to break even and they're not trying to take over the world and they need 500K just to, you know, make sure that they're, they're able to support a, a big customer. And so, you know, are, are you guys willing to take bets on those types of companies as well? So um, I think that's a bit of a fallacy. Like, I don't think it's easy to try to like kind of hit small outcomes. Um, I think it's like just as hard to build a company that someone wants to buy for $50 million. It is to build a company that someone wants to buy for 500. Um, so uh, I just think that kind of thinking, oh, okay, this doesn't have as much upside, like which therefore means it's less risky. Like that's more often than not, not the case. I also think that if you speak to a lot of investors who've been doing this for a long time, um, I just saw a tweet from one of the partners at CRV actually yesterday. She said, in all of my years, every single company we passed on because of the TAM being too small was a mistake, right? I think that you have to understand that TAM expands and kind of have to think about, you know, is it that the TAM is going to expand or that that company specifically will be able to move horizontally or move vertically in order to kind of drive a TAM expansion? Um, so I think for us, like we just think about it as um, it doesn't need to be that the immediate kind of you know, thing that they're going after is, is massive, as long as we see the path towards kind of a really large addressable market. As they say, the riches are in the niches. So I, we actually like kind of going in with things that are kind of perceived as small, but as a great wedge or as like a Trojan horse for like a much larger opportunity later. Nice. The riches are in the niches. That's new to me. I like that one. Yeah, that's a good one. I would, I would maybe think about it actually by doing, maybe like doing the math backwards. So we assume when we do, whether it's a pre-seed or a seed check, doesn't matter. Our assumption is that the company is not going to become profitable and drive itself towards a successful exit event from that check alone. Our assumption is they'll need to raise follow-on capital. Um, and then you could really easily get yourself in a trap at early stages if you're open to investing in companies that you know maybe fit outside of the VC model if no later stage VCs are willing to come on board. And I guess the the simple way to kind of check that, right, is think about what is what do you feel like is a potential exit outcome here? Would it be large enough for for larger funds? And if not, then those funds aren't going to follow. Um, so I would say that's kind of the way we think about it. I don't think that pre-seed should be viewed as an alternative sell, so <clears throat> alternative source of capital for people who are starting like a small business. Um, of, you know, raise, raising money from a VC is a really expensive way to finance a company. Um, and if it doesn't feel like a fit for a founder because they're not looking for the same type of outcome that VCs expect, it's not gonna be, it's not gonna be the most, you know, beneficial relationship for either party. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I, I think, it, no, at the end of the day, 20% of the companies return 100% of the fund, right? I mean, typically, right? So that's, I think that's, Typically, the way it works, I mean, when you read Fred Wilson to, you know, all the top investors, they say basically the same thing. Actually, Fred just wrote something about it like two weeks ago when he said, even as an LP and he invested as an LP in a bunch of funds, it was always the same trend, right? So you always have to look for companies that can actually make it to that 20%, uh, I guess, area, right? Yeah. <clears throat> I think for us at Iconic, we'll experiment, you know, here and there with companies that we feel can actually build a nice business and they actually are not venture companies, right? But that's not the majority, that's the minority. Um, but we, have, we need to be very comfortable with the fact that these guys can really execute and really generate cash uh, and build a business that can be meaningful. Because even if they sell it for like 20 to 50 million, it can actually be very meaningful for them and can be very meaningful for us. Cool. Um, now, just a, a quick question about accelerators. Are you guys, um, I mean, uh, Ayal, do you still sort of brand Iconic as, as an acceleration program? And, you know, for, for David and, and Leah, um, you know, are, are you guys looking at accelerators for, for deal flow? Is it, is it still interesting? Why or why not? 
I'll start because I'm the, I guess I'm the accelerator guy over here, right? So uh, the truth is that I'm not a big fan of accelerators, right? So <laughs> I'm going so, to see this. I'm putting this out there. Everyone needs to know. Um, so there's two things, right? So I don't think we've never really branded Iconic as an accelerator, but more as a partner, because we don't have the typical format of like three months, demo day, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I was never a big fan of this, right? Like, I think there's YC and everybody else, right? So I think that's the way I look at this. Uh, and, I, and I also think that there's a very different um, orientation, orientation to the term accelerator in the US versus Israel. You can actually see some amazing companies coming out of ERA or even Dreamit in New York or, or, or Barclays Techstars. Um, but I think in Israel, it's a little bit of a, I want to say a cheaper way to brand it because it's just so many accelerators and so many people just want to be in the game. And a lot of the accelerators don't even put any check-in. So there's no real skin. Um, so we think of, of, of ourselves as, as a long-term partner. I can tell you that I personally uh, work with the companies for many, many years because at the end of the day, when they need something that they don't feel comfortable going to their own investor, for whatever reason it is, they come to us. And I think that's something that aligns us with the founders. Um, and listen, I think at the end of the day, it's very lonely to be there. You gotta make decisions and you need to, you know, it takes a village and you need to uh, work with people that you feel comfortable going to. And that's what we wanna be. Uh, but there is that four to six months boost where, hey, this is very hands-on. If we're not gonna go from this point to the next, in the next three to four months, we're just not gonna get there. So that's, that's yeah. what we're kind of trying to do. Well, I was just so good that no one wants to talk. <laughs> You're amazing. Not just so good. Leah, what were you saying? <laughs> We've invested in a handful of companies that uh, we met them through accelerators. Um, it's been, it's definitely been a good source, you know, of deal flow for us. Also love working with them in general. Um, I, I still think that it's a good resource. I can't comment on accelerators based in the States because I just have less visibility. Um, but I see a lot of a lot of accelerators here in Israel that actually provide real meaningful value to the startups that go through them. What I would say maybe for founders who are looking um, at participating in an accelerator and are trying to decide which one to join is get a sense of whether or not, obviously talk to people you know, whether they've had a positive or negative experience. Um, I think that goes without saying, but not all accelerators take equity, not all of them invest capital, uh, just like y'all said. And there's pros and cons. Um, some startups aren't necessarily looking to raise money through an accelerator. Some people are. Um, both are great. It just, you know, it's a different path. And I've seen startups who've kind of not thought about that aspect of it going into an accelerator program where maybe they would have gotten more out of a different opportunity from that piece alone. Um, I think if you're going to do one, you just need to make sure you know what the specific asks are you have for the program and what you want to get out of it. But I, I see plenty of strong startups coming through them still. The other thing to consider is just how time demanding a specific program is, right? So it's not like it's either or, right? You can't, you don't have to join an accelerator to the exclusion of everything else. There are some programs where it is intensive like that and they expect you to be attending things. And, and then you have to make a more conscious decision that this is kind of the, you know, uh, the thing that you could get a maximum return on in terms of your time. And, um, but yeah, I agree. I think that in Israel, there's, there's a bunch of accelerators, um, that are free and add a ton of value. And like, that's an amazing combination. Um, I think the kind of bad reputation that accelerators got, um, was, was more in the States when you had lots of programs popping up that were taking kind of absurd amounts of equity and, and doing very little. Right. For the companies. Um, but I don't think that's the types of people that any of us here are working with. Right. Now, I guess kind of a, a final, a final wrap up question. Um, where do you see pre-seed evolving towards, you know, do you, do you have any view on, on the future of pre-seed? If we get back together a year or two from now, uh, do you think there will be any significant changes to, to this stage? I'll start. Um, right now, one of the big differences that I see between the U S market and Israel you have a lot more funds in the States that do pre-seed. Um, you have just a lot more micro funds where maybe they themselves do pre-seed rounds alone, or they'll join them with another micro fund. If they feel that a startup is more of a seed stage, you know, than pre-seed that's much more typical. Um, 
I think that in a couple of years here, we'll see more micro funds popping up who are looking at pre-seed. I, I know that there's a bunch of funds that people are kind of like working on raising in that space right now. And hopefully those will all work out for those individuals. To me, the fact that round sizes are going up so much at seed means that there simply needs to be something coming in before it because I can't really imagine in two years time from now, every startup that begins its journey says on day one, and today I raised 6 million. It, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and there's so much foreign capital coming in. So I really think that that will trickle down to pre-seed as well. Um, the, the angel environment is really becoming more robust in Israel. It's still fairly nascent, but you know, there's another Israeli unicorn being crowned every single day here, it feels like. And along with that, of course, right, it's, it's literal wealth creation. So you're going to see more founders and former founders who are coming in as angels. But I think that along with that is going to also be the emergence of micro funds doing pre-seed as a category in Israel. Yeah, I think, I think just to build on your last point about the increase in operator angels, I actually think that's why pre-seed funds in, in a certain way are getting squeezed from both sides, right? So you've got the large funds that are coming down and kind of doing seed. And then you do have this huge crop of, you know, operators who are who are trying to do kind of pre-seed angel investing. I know a company just now that they didn't want any institutions. They only raised from like six well-known, you know, CEOs of Israeli like unicorns. And each one of those CEOs said, we're all going to be an early adopter of your company. So we're pretty much going to guarantee that you're not going to go raise like an unbelievable round. Like that's a pretty powerful formula. Like as a founder, you know, can't get much better than that. Um, but I do think, uh, you know, as Leah said, that as round sizes grow, it's really just that pre-seed is the new seed and seed became A and A became B and kind of everything just got pushed out. So essentially what was pre-seed is now seed. And because before that, like a couple of years ago, you know, I heard people talking about before pre-seed was like the germination round, right? It's like when the seed, you know, it's like, so, you know, every, <laughs> you can throw a name on anything. Um, I actually think the kind of the part that's I'm seeing a lot less of is like the friends and family kind of round because there's much more angel kind of capital sloshing around. But I definitely think um, having an institutional partner whose job it is, and this is kind of the main difference between a, a you know, pre-seed fund and an operator angel, like Ayal, Leah and I, we wake up every morning just asking ourselves the question, like how can we help our portfolio companies? Like that's our job, right? And, and so you know, keeping them top of mind and helping them in every way that we can, I think that that's extremely valuable and that's not gonna go away and, and, and lots of founders are gonna be looking for that support. Yeah, I agree. And I think you know, if you look at the evolution of seed funds in New York, <clears throat> they started with giving up checks and, and making bets. And then if you look at today's in the world, most of them have value creation teams they have, you know, inside teams who help with, you know, business dev and sales and marketing and PR and whatever you can think of, right? <clears throat> and I think you also look at specializations, right? Like if you talk about accelerators, you know, you had like the general accelerators and then you had accelerators who uh, focus on, on mobility or, or, you know, assess or, or whatever it is, right? And I think that evolution will eventually grow um, and come into pre-seed, right? So you'll see pre-seed funds who specialize, you know, in SaaS or pre-seed funds who, who do something else or, or maybe provide like a different value. And I think that's, um, I think that's good for the market. It's good for founders. And, and I think it's uh, eventually going to be the trend in my opinion. Awesome. Um, this has been very insightful, very fun. Uh, it's really been a pleasure mm -hmm. to have the three of you uh, all together at once and hear your different perspectives. Um, hopefully the, the audience has gotten a, uh, an insight or two as well. So thanks everyone for taking the time. Uh, shameless plug, I now have a newsletter where you can stay on top of my uh, latest event. So if you're interested in subscribing, it's now in the chat. We're, we're getting close to 100 subscribers. So uh, I'll throw a party once we get there. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks again. Thanks again to everyone who was on the panel. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Max. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks you.